the um, scripture reading for today is Luke 3, verses 7 through 18. So please follow along as I read it aloud. Then John said to the crowd who came to be baptized by him, You children of snakes, who warned you to escape from the angry judgment that is coming soon? Produce fruit that shows you have changed your hearts and lives. And don't even think about saying to yourselves, Abraham is our father. I tell you that God is able to raise up Abraham's children from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and tossed into the fire. The crowds asked him, what then should we do? He answered, whoever has two shirts must share with the one who has none, and whoever has food must do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. They said to him, teacher, what should we do? He replied, collect no more than you are authorized to collect. Soldiers asked, what about us? What should we do? He answered, don't cheat or harass anyone and be satisfied with your pay. The people were filled with expectation and everyone wondered whether John might be the Christ. John replied to them all, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than me is coming. I'm not worthy to loosen the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The shovel he uses to sift the wheat from the husks is in his hands. He will clean out his threshing area and bring the wheat into his barn. But he will burn the husks with a fire that can't be put out. With many other words, John appealed to them, proclaiming good news to the people. This is the word of the Lord. Meg didn't know in her um, Christmas Eve announcement that an alternate title for the sermon was going to be Kids in Child Care and Fire, uh, related to the passage. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really thankful uh, for, Laurel, uh, for Laurel reading and uh, realize that it's a little maybe dizzying to have someone with such a kind voice uh, just start, start in hard on the uh, Brood of Vipers passage that we get this morning. Yeah, it, it really has been quite an advent. And um, I, I don't know if, if you're like me, but when I'm really deeply immersed in something that I've been thinking about and it's just been on my mind and, you know, this is the last sermon I'll preach in this year. And so I, I, I've, I've been struggling with this. It, it starts to mess with your dreams does that happen to anyone else like when their work is particularly intense and and I think it's it has another layer when you're wading into the strange new world of the bible and so the bible stuff starts happening in your dreams and it's a little hard to and maybe I'm just on the edge of that like young men in visions and old men in dreams thing I'm like right smack in the middle um but I, I've had all these dreams this week and I come from this giant 
um, Irish Catholic family with all of these cousins that I haven't seen in years. And so maybe thinking about Jesus's cousin, John, John and John, there's this beautiful picture that I always think about John. It's, it's uh, the Eisenheim altarpiece by Grunewald. And John, the one pointing at Jesus, is Jesus's cousin. So maybe that has churned all of these cousin thoughts in my mind, these, these people showing up from my past in strange places um, and, and unexpected. And, and one of those cousins that has was in one of the dreams is from Philly. And so one night I have this Philly cousin in my dream. And the next night I have Philly um, mascot, Gritty, in my dreams. And, and, and perhaps this is like exactly what should be happening for Advent because Advent should be so wild and wooly and weird and maybe Gritty is a perfect stand-in for John the Baptist pointing to his cousin Jesus. Year three of Advent has me messed up, okay? This is part of my campaign to keep Advent weird. I fear that our that our Advent wreath lighting, you know, we have these themes that we center around and meditate on each year, and they're prescient. They they're every year they come around. You're like, ah, oh, I I need to be recentering my hope. I need to be thinking about peace. I need to reinvest in joy. Uh, this joy that comes out of nowhere. This uh, I need to to be re uh, in, invigorated for love, but these are all, these can even be tamed themes, especially uh, earlier this week, I found out the original, like uh, maybe not original, but early church themes for these candles and four words were things like death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Imagine, uh, imagine me trying to get Shirley and Calvin to come up and sneaking attack that they are now lighting the hell candle for us. You know? <laughs> so think about that when we think about Advent. It's a very sober time. It's a strange time. It's it's maybe more Halloween than how we think about Christmas. It's definitely more memento mori than Deck the Halls or Jingle Bell Rock, right? So with all this in mind, Jesus' cousin John seems to really understand the assignment. He launches in on this scene in Luke's gospel spewing invectives. His ministry is <laughs> attracting quite a crowd. I wonder if we had someone saying these things in the neighborhood, if people would gather or disperse, right? People are taking notice. They are streaming to John as he's standing waist deep in the river of God's forgiveness, proclaiming a new way. You think this would be all invitational. Come get wet. The water is fine, right? But instead, John dresses them down, calls them a brood of vipers. Now, here it's tempting to always situate ourselves as like the John character in the story. Like those people out there are the winnowed. We are the winners, right? Like you guys need to shape up. They are the children of snakes. They're some species that can't be trusted. They're Adam and Eve's offspring. Uh, they're Adam and Eve's nemesis offspring, right? But what if John is talking about us? <laughs> like all of us, like even now. What if, what if these words are meant to just like blister us now? 
So John keeps his tirade going, and he talks about the would-be fruit that we should be bearing. This is a fruit that comes from repentance. It, it, it's, it's from lives that are characterized by a, a permeability, a malleability, the will and the want to recognize that you're headed the wrong way and you need to turn around and come back, come back to God. So in short, these are the sorts of lives, and now's the time, a good time for introspection. Am I living this sort of life? The sort of life that is a life that is not so set on myself that I can't change. That we're living changeable lives. That we're cultivating an ability to recognize God's advent, or at least for runners to when God comes, and to receive those not as threats but as gifts. Even hard gifts like repentance. You know, repentance can be a gift. You know, being told wrong can be a gift. That you're wrong can be a gift. This is all the more confusing because in, in the Bible story, in Luke's Good News, it appears that John is talking to the heirs of a promise. Those children of Father Abraham, they are the ones that know what God has said, and they think they're on the inside of what God is doing. Maybe this describes you and me, people who have been at this whole God thing, this whole church thing, this whole religion thing for a while. You can't tell us nothing. But that experience certainly should come with some sort of maturity, some sort of security, some sort of growth and knowledge and remembering of God's faithfulness, but it can also be this sort of hardening, this kind of calcification that is unhealthy and that John is calling his hearers out of. He is shaking them out of this hardness, the hardness of a life that banks on the past but doesn't build for the future. It's his, his message kind of boils down to a so-called fruit tree that no longer produces fruit. It's just glorified firewood. Let's just quit pretending, is what he's saying. The axe is already at the root of the trees. This feels a bit like John is extolling the virtues rather than the dangers of some kind of like productive deconstruction. <laughs> Repent and then keep repenting, is what he's saying or else God will deconstruct you. <laughs> There's a, an old folk song that says, you can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God's going to cut you down, is what John is saying. I kind of, with all this swirling, I, I had a recent related insight uh, talking with my spiritual director about, and I'm, I'm pretty new at this thing, and I'm, I'm learning some of these practices of centering prayer and, and cultivating intimacy with God through making space and silence. And it, it, it's, it occurred to me that it is strange how most of us are, I'll just speak for myself, um, think about growing in God, spiritual maturity, as some sort of arc that looks a lot like, like an American suburban middle-class marriage. Like you start out like really passionate and hot for Jesus, right? And then it kind of cools down when you get to know them and let's get a little sensible, let's be sustainable. And, and in this kind of way of, of, of configuring our spiritual lives, maturity doesn't necessarily equal intimacy. That's so out of whack, that's so strange. We like lose the sweaty palm expectation and curiosity and risk that we once knew in the early days. And we look back on those days sometimes with longing, like I wish I felt like I used to feel, 
but also sometimes we look at it with disdain. I was such a foolish kid. That was campus ministry. That was youth group, right? But what if growing in our spiritual lives with God means growing in intimacy with God? Like the only way we can grow in intimacy is to completely and continually abandon ourselves to God. Maybe this is something you only did in the early days. This is a callback. Turn around, repent, and go back to that. What we, like, we need to abandon ourselves, which means we need to abandon what we think we know about God, what we think we know about ourselves, others, the world, the present, the future. We need to give all of this to the God who sees and knows and creates and cares about all of those things, all of the things that we are anxious about or uncertain about or that we tighten our grip on. We never get too far from the foundation of God's love in our lives, even as we build. And sometimes we need to unbuild some things that weren't built right. So to grow in this sort of intimacy always requires some kind of repentance from us. We really have to continually submit and resubmit to letting God mess with us. We've got to submit to letting God mess with us. A lot of times this is like addition by subtraction when God messes with us. God takes away our burdens. God sands down our pride. God topples our idols. God uproots our unhealthy tendencies. This is how we are not conformed to the patterns of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? And so I think this is happening a little in John with John's crowd. And you get this repeated question. Whenever anything's repeated in Scripture, hone in on it and ask some questions about it. And there's this question by the people that are gathered around John. They keep asking, what then shall we do? <laughs> Good question. What then? shall we do? What is the actionable thing here based on all of these things that you're saying that are so confusing to me? The same question gets asked by different parts of this crowd. First, there's like the, the general crowd that says, what then shall we do? And John says, whoever has two shirts must share with the one who has none, and whoever has food must do the same. Then the tax collectors ask, what then shall we do? And John says, collect no more than you're authorized to collect. This hits me really hard because I am notorious dad tax taker. If I'm opening your candy, I'm taking a bite of that candy bar. And then the third group says, and these are soldiers, that soldiers are talking to John, like submitting to John as some sort of teacher, someone that can tell them anything is, is really curious and interesting. And John stands up tall and says, don't cheat anyone or harass them and be satisfied with your pay. The questions and who they come from kind of get more and more shocking as the concentric circles build outward. It's, it's the crowds, it's the tax collectors, it's the soldiers. There seems to be a deepening like unlikeliness from general to specific. And I love that I, I love, um, like a paraphrase of this scene by, by a pastor poet named Drew Jackson. He, he wrote a poem about this passage. I, I think I got it, yeah. He says, look who came to lay their burdens down by the riverside. 
The burdens of cheating us and beating us until we bleed are too heavy to bear. Are my eyes deceived? Do I really see officers, soldiers, and the ones who make us shoulder heavy burdens? I'm certain this is a revolution. Nothing else would make them respond to rebukes with repentance instead of armoring up with shields and defenses. Instead of armoring up. I love that. Instead of armoring up, these folks are opening up. Instead of armoring up, these folks are opening up to have their lives altered, to have porous lives open to repentance, to have lives that are open to invasion, the advent of a Messiah. This is surely the sign of an at-hand kingdom. (laughs) It's really subtle, but I, I, I almost hear like an echo of Isaiah saying that swords should be beaten into plowshares not just from their hands, but from their hearts. These soldiers are, are, are submitting themselves to this new word and this new way. Each of these amper, uh, answers in the small sample set have to do with, with overreach, with insatiability. You know, you have two coats, they don't have any. You're cheating them, stop cheating them. Don't take more than you have, be satisfied with your pay. Isn't that kind of our our base sin that kind of funds all of these other kinds of unsatisfaction and sins? This uh, in Philippians two language, this is the grasping that Jesus refused to do, and we see the the overall temperature of the room after all this is really surprising. It says after John gives these these uh, commands or, or answers. It says, the people are filled with expectation, and everyone wondered whether John might be the Christ. They're filled with expectation, and they wonder if John's the one. It seems like these costly answers, this costly vision of discipleship that John is laying out is kind of like thermostatic. It changes the temperature in the room. It changes things for them, and it can change things for us. John actually means them, and we need to receive them. I think this is how the presence of God often works. When we encounter God, it's not always just like burning bushes and mountaintop experiences, summer camp, last night of summer camp sort of thing, excitement and easiness. Often in our real lives, in all the times after those times, to be open to the arrival of God in our world and in our individual lives, more often looks, th- looks like things like Mary's morning sickness. <laughs> when God came to Mary, she had morning sickness and also had a lot of explaining to do. It can show up like the confusion and unintended consequences of Joseph's unplanned quote-unquote fatherhood, right? It says Joseph found out and immediately went into planning on how he could quietly divorce Mary so that they would both be okay, right? That's the result of God coming into their lives, into our world. We see that later in Jesus's life when Jesus meets under the cloak of darkness with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is just like 
first off, Nicodemus is all of us, right? He's like banging his head against the wall with this enigmatic Jesus non-answer that he needs to be born anew, born again, born from above. That's what happens when we meet God. We, we don't often get the answer we want how we want it. Or it can look like the rich young ruler walking away sorrowful and disappointed. We don't really know what happened in that story, but we know he got hit by a ton of bricks with the, the prospect that his own piety wasn't enough. He, he had to do less, not more. This is what happens when we grow in intimacy with Jesus and when we mature spiritually. We're meant to give away everything we have and everything we know. Like, uh, I think about, there's this uh, newer song by Jason Isbell, and it says, you thought God was an architect. God is a pipe bomb. Like, when we meet God, when God comes, the advent of our Savior comes as a crater. There are all these pieces to pick up. We, we have to be open to being messed with. We have to make room to be messed with. We have to practice hospitality for it. When Jesus shows up uninvited or invited, we often spend the rest of our lives picking up the pieces. Those are the Bible stories of God's coming. That's really daunting. We can take a breath. It's okay. <laughs> That's a that's that's like receiving a bad diagnosis right there. It's like, and it makes you wonder: Can there be joy in this? After all, we we lit that pink candle. This should be a positive and inspiring, uplifting. Can there be joy in chopped down trees and burning husk? Can there be joy in baptism as a Holy Spirit cleansing, but also as a four alarm fire, like John talks about? How do we experience joy in the midst of upheaval and suffering and tension? Do we need to know what will happen tomorrow to be joyful today? I think often joy in our ability to even experience joy has to, has to happen in a place where we clear the ground or in, invite our ground to be cleared like continually so that God can grow and build us. God can grow joy and God can build us in hope. This is how deconstruction and repentance and faith are all kind of related. It reminds me of a poem from a Jewish poet. And uh, he talks about, from the place that we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. Because that place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. <laughs> But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole a plow. And a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. So we often circle and trample rather than create space for tilled fertile ground for God to grow something. This can only happen from a starting point of repentance, rather from a starting point of rightness and righteousness and pride. Hard ground is not fertile ground. Doubts and loves dig up the world. A whisper, a whimper, like the coo of the infant Christ child breaks into the broken ground of our hearts and our lives. It's, it's a, a brilliant recurring object lesson that this time of year, this sermon comes around every time this time of year, and there's always just out the doors and on the side yard, there's um, this garden. <laughs> 
in a phase of this garden, I think Jesus might have used an object lesson like this that was at hand. If you look to the side yard, you won't see much compared to the rest of the year. If you come here in August, it's explosive. There's a bumper crop of tomatoes and okra. There's towering sunflowers, and there's more pole beans than you can eat. But right now is more unassuming. There's clover, and there's bulbs that are subterranean, and there's signs of things hoped for but not seen. The unproductive and the no longer fruit bearing has been ripped out. I don't think we burned it. We just ripped it out. The ground has to be tilled to be made fertile. But we have to wait. And I think this is the character of joy in waiting. That real joy, not fleeting distractions or how we numb ourselves with happiness or superficial feelings. Real joy that sits heavy in your gut, that puts its hope and expectation in the coming of Jesus, that is, is this interruptive joy. Like this pink candle that interrupts all these purple candles of hope and expectation. It springs up. This joy kind of comes out of nowhere, but it also requires a heck of a lot of work behind it. Sometimes it's really hard to feel this joy if you aren't oriented in hope. But this kind of joy isn't really that dependent on how things are going or how you're feeling right now. It doesn't shift a whole lot based on our circumstances. This joy is solid. And we sung about this solid joy in Psalm 126 today. It's a joy that, that the Jewish people, it was pretty central in their songbook in these Psalms of Ascent when they would, you always go up to Jerusalem and they would be climbing together, singing these songs. And picture like protest songs or civil rights songs, these voices joined on the journey, on in movement. And they sang these songs and, and it was a remembering song. They said, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, they were not restored at this point. But when the Lord did that, we're, we're looking forward and thinking backwards here. We were like those who dreamed our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. You see this joy erupting and interrupting in the midst of their hardship. Things used to be lousy, but then God showed up and restored our lives. And in joy, the past remakes the future. Things are lousy now, but we can count on God to do it again. More appropriately, we find joy in the fact that God will remake the future. Eugene Peterson says, joy builds on the past and borrows from the future. So in the middle, if it feels really tense, it's because you're strung out between these two poles. But that's exactly where joy comes in in our lives. And, and to do that well, we need to remind each other of this future borrowing because sometimes we get so backwards looking or so forwards looking that we need someone else with another angle that can, that can tell us where we are and who we are. That can, you know, this is, um, this is like Jesus's beatitudes. Blessed are those who are mourned for they shall be comforted. This comfort can happen even now as this kingdom breaks in and they will ultimately be comforted. We need each other for this, to bear Christ's comfort and blessing now. We need each other to remind each other and to sing along even on this long, hard ascent. So our joy in Christ is with others and 
we stand a better chance of making it through these tough times. And with others, we also have the kind of courage it takes to ask like all those hearers with John, what shall we do? What can we do? What do we need to do, Jesus, to get through, to follow through with our repentance? We need others to help us. We need others to help us so we can actually see with our friends' eyes what we couldn't have seen with our own. God's really subtle, really sneaky, really beautiful working. The kingdom of God growing like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God growing like bulbs and clover and waiting for the springtime. Will you all pray with me? Lord, help us be a people that remembers the past and borrows from the future. Help us be a joyful people. Um, I don't know that we're all going to experience the same joy at the same time, but help us mourn with those who are mourning and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Help us, uh, to some degree, be your presence to others and experience your presence through others. Lord, thanks for this season that is so complicated and so outrageous and calls us to repentance and calls us to reckon with the fact that we probably are wrong <laughs> some or most of the time and need your grace and need your mercy and need your gifts. We thank you for all these things and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.